0: One of the things that we constantly try and, and, and drill into you is the difference between Christianity or essence of it and religiosity. Been um, going through the sermon series on the Ten Commandments and, and, and this gets to kind of the crux of that. If you understand or look at the Ten Commandments as a list of rules that God gives for us to obey, to follow, so that we could somehow earn his acceptance, so that we could somehow earn his favor or merit it, then we completely miss the essence of what the Ten Commandments is all about. The Ten Commandments were given to people who've already been set free so that they could live free. The Ten Commandments are given to people who've already been set free. They're given to the nation of Israel after God delivers them You read that story in the Old Testament, they don't do a whole lot. They just place their trust in God when he says, post the blood of the lamb and the goats on the doorpost, and judgment will pass you. That's all they do, and God delivers them from that act of faith and trust. And once they've been set free as they stand in Mount Sinai, God gives them the law, the Ten Commandments, essentially to say, now you've been set free, here's how you live free. Here's how you live the life that I've designed for you to live. If you read the Ten Commandments, it says this is what you have to do. You miss the point. God, through the Ten Commandments, was saying what? This is who you are. This is what it means to live the life that God designed for you to live. So we've been going through the Ten Commandments, and we saw that the first four are how we relate to God, and that the next six are how we relate to others. And what we began to see is that the Ten Commandments doesn't just have ramifications for our relationship with God, but it has ramifications for how we relate to each other in community, in human community. And I said this two weeks ago, three weeks ago. When you look at the last six commandments, even if you are not a Christian, a believer, a religious person, you begin to see that obeying the Ten Commandments... The latter six, in terms of how we relate to each other, it's just common sense. Would our society and our culture work better if people didn't commit adultery? And the answer is yes. Would our society and our culture work better if we did not murder each other? The answer is yes. If we didn't bear false witness, if we didn't steal, if we didn't covet, our culture, our society would work Better would we'll work the way God designed it for it to work. And so today we come to the commandment where God says, you shall not murder. By the way, when I planned this about a year ago, the Preacher's Sermon series, I did not plan that this sermon would land on this day in this time of our nation's sort of events. I, I, I promise you I did not. And yet here we are. You shall not. Mour- I don't know if there is a more pertinent sermon, not just for us personal, individually, but also as a country, a nation, as a society, and our culture. The Ten Commandments. Many of them are cast in the negative. Thou shalt not. But if you trace out each of the commandments and trace it out throughout. The biblical ethic, you always discover again that there is a positive invited as well as a negative prohibited. Unless you understand the positive invited as well as a negative invited, you will not understand the Ten Commandments. So for example, when we covered you shall not commit adultery, what God was also saying in the positive invited was you shall have great sex You shall have great God-ordained biblical sex in the content of marriage. When God says you shall not steal, as we'll look at next week, the positive invited is you shall be radically generous. And today when God says through this commandment you shall not murder, the negative prohibited, you have to understand the positive invited, and that is you shall consider every human life as if it's of infinite value. The positive invited is you shall be, as we'll see, aggressively compassionate towards every single human being that you encounter in a way that they feel valued, they feel honored, they feel affirmed. They feel like their life matters. If you and I take this commandment seriously, God will do spiritual surgery in our hearts in such a way that we'll walk out of here changed. Do you hear me? You shall not murder, negative, positive, prohibited. You shall consider Every single human life you encounter, the person sitting on the L next to you that smells, the person that is in front of you when you're in line and we're in lines all day every day in the city of Chicago, the person who makes your coffee, your coworker, every single life you encounter, you should consider their lives as of infinite value. would Our nation be different if we live this biblical ethic. The first time that this commandment is given, which we'll expound on, is found in Genesis 9, actually. Turn your Bibles to Genesis 9, verse 5, and we'll kind of park ourselves on this passage. Genesis 9, verse 5, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and we'll, we'll talk about that for like thirty seconds. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Verse six: Whoever sheds human blood by humans, shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Very simple today. Very simple outline. You have a theological theological principle, and then practical ramifications. A theological principle is how does God view human life? How does Creator God view human life? And the practical applications is then how are we supposed to live? Real quick, give me like one minute to talk to those of you that don't consider yourself religious, Christian, spiritual, etc. Here's why we as Christians and followers of Jesus absolutely believe that a belief in a good Creator God is important for a society that doesn't trample each other. See, it's our belief in a God that gives us this idea that people are created in the image of God. And because people are created in the image of God, there's a sacredness to their life, you see. And when you understand and believe that there's sacredness to every human life, it gives us the basis for not trampling on each other and a basis for a just society. What do you mean? If there is no God and we're literally just a bag of chemicals or we're animals, if you will, then what basis do you have for a just moral society? How do you have a moral outness on how animals treat other animals? Where do you get people say, if God was just and loving then there wouldn't be any suffering in the world. So there can't be a just and loving God because there's so much suffering in the world. To which I would say, if there is no just and loving God, where do you have a moral basis to say there shouldn't be suffering and how we treat each other in the world? We get our basis for the way to treat each other in a way that each other's life is sacred is this belief that we are made in the image of God. And we believe that people are made in the image of God because there is a creator God who created us. In his What's the theological principle? The theological principle simply is all human life is sacred. All human life is sacred in a different way than anything else in creation. Where do you get that? Verse 5. Again, I don't know what to do with verse. It says that if I will demand, God says, an accounting from every animal, it's as if God is saying, if animals kill a human being, then God is going to hold those animals accountable. That's what it says. How does it work, Peter? I have no idea. But don't miss the point. The point is if God says, I'm going to hold animals accountable for doing that which is just instinctive for animals, then how much more will God hold you and me accountable for human life? Think about that for a second. If creator God says, I will demand, I'm angry at an animal for doing that which is instinctive, And God says, how much more are you and I accountable for how we treat another human life? God loves all of his creation. He loves everything he has made. But God is saying here, in no uncertain terms, there's something special about human life. Human life is sacred, and anyone who violates it, I will hold them accountable. Now, you know how we do this in our church. I don't just go, human life is sacred. Everybody goes, amen. I take you deeper. I take you deeper. I get you to think. How is human life sacred, Peter? I think it's sacred in three ways. One, human life is sacred because it's priceless. What do you mean? Walk up to a man and says, um, that's a beautiful diamond ring. How much for that diamond ring? A man says, it's not for sale. I bought that for my wife when we got engaged. She died a tragic death two years ago. That diamond ring is priceless to me. What's he saying? No exchange for it. There's no amount of money you could pay that would be worth it. It's priceless. God says every human life it's priceless. There's no exchange for it. Where do you get that, Peter? Verse 6, whoever sheds human life, by human life shall their blood be shed. Now, again, I'm going to say a couple of things. If you're sitting and going, so at some point you're going to talk about capital punishment, you're going to talk about abortion, you're going to talk about suicide. No, I'm not. Do you know why? Because once you go there, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Christians love to debate on those finer points by arguing about this passage. You're missing the point. Here's what God was saying when he says, whoever sheds human by by blood, by human shall their blood be shed. Remember that God is saying this in a culture, in a culture, and I'm going to get to this. What God is saying to Israel is he's trying to turn them into an incredibly merciful, very countercultural, just society. This is a time in which the ancient codes of civilization worked like this. There's tremendous amount of class distinction. There's tremendous amount of class distinction at the basis for punishment for murder in this time. For example, in those days, it's very normal that if a very wealthy, a very wealthy or a powerful person was murdered then whoever murdered that person would be murdered. And a lot of times, their entire family was wiped out too. But if a poor person was murdered by a wealthy person, but if someone who wasn't considered very important or valuable in the society was murdered by someone of a wealthy privileged position, the wealthy privileged family could simply pay a sum of money, 10,000 shekels and things were taken care of. But if you pay $10,000 for someone's life, the question is raised, well, what was that man's life worth? Answer? 10,000 shekels. If you kill somebody, and somebody gets 20 years in life, 20 years, what was the man's life then worth? Answer? Now, what is God saying? God's saying, there is no exchange for human life. There is no exchange for human life. Anything you put in the place there, anything you put in the place there would not be enough for that human life. The only thing that you could exchange human life is what? Its own currency, which is another life. It's God's way of saying human life is priceless. It's of infinite value. This is why in the nation of Israel, and some of you, I hope you read the entire Old Testament differently. This is why in the nation of Israel, you have this remarkable log where God says, if you murder somebody, it doesn't matter if you're wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're powerful. It doesn't matter if you're privileged. If you murder somebody, you were put to death. It was a way of safeguarding the sanctity of life. In a world where people who were poor, in a world where people of a certain race or gender were not looked upon as infinitely valuable and you could pay a finite sum of money, what is God saying? God is saying there is no finite sum of money that could pay for another human life. Radical. What God was saying to Israel was absolutely radical. Secondly, human life is sacred because it's not yours. Duh. Let me break it down. Something is sacred if it's put into your hands, but it's not yours. And so you're accountable for it. The person gives you during this holiday, twenty thousand dollars, and he says it's a gift. Here, it's no longer sacred. Why? It's in your hands, but it's a gift. You could do as you wish. It's yours. But if somebody puts you into your hands twenty thousand dollars and says, "Here, it's mine. I want you to invest it, though. Be my broker. In your hands." not yours to keep and do as you wish. You're not the owner. I'm just entrusting you with it. Safeguard it. Invest it. You're accountable for it. God says, verse 5, for your lifeblood, I will demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting for the life of your fellow man. Please, everybody, look up here and pay attention to this. God is saying every life that comes into your hands, every person that comes into your world, every single human life that you encounter when you go to work tomorrow, whether it's your doorman, whether it's your cab driver who won't take you to River North at 2 o'clock in the morning and lies to you about it, whether it's the person that you're making that's making your coffee and there's like nine other people in front of you and you're just dying inside because the line is so slow, whether it's that same brother or sister that you see on the L in your commute to work and they smell, whether it's your neighbor who is grumpy and treats you like crap. Every single human life that comes into your hands, God says, is a sacred deposit, is a sacred trust and your account. Every single, I'll talk a little bit practical about what that means towards the end, but for now, here's what you need to know. Every single human life, that is the life of your parents, that is the life of your wife, your husband, life of your friends, life of your neighbors, life of every single life is not yours, so you can't do whatever you want with it, meaning you can't shred it emotionally. You can't shred it verbally. You can't shred it spiritually. You can't shred it and do however you wish. Why? It's not yours. You've been given a sacred trust. Question. How do we do this week? How do you talk to your parents? How do you talk to your spouses? How do you talk to your friends? Remember, Jesus elevates us in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, even if you're angry with them, Meaning, you're resentful, you're bitter, you're not forgiving, you're harsh, you roll your eyes, you're indifferent, you're apathetic. He says, You're murdering them. These lives are coming into your sphere. It's not yours. Why are you treating them like it's yours? Like you could do whatever you want with it? God says, A sacred deposit. <sighs> I was debating whether I go. Give me two minutes to talk about suicide. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't want to open up a can of worms. But I'm gonna, okay? <laughs> just give me like two minutes, okay? And then I I'm not gonna talk it because there's some of us here that have been deeply wounded because we know somebody who's committed suicide, and I just I'm not going to, be, I, just, I just want to say the following. There are some folks who go, I'm going to take my life because it's my life. It's my life to do as I wish. It's my life. It's my own. And I want to just say this. I just want to say this. If you understand this biblical doctrine, you understand our lives are not our own. We don't, in the Christian vernacular, do as we want because our lives were bought at a price. Amen. Someone who says, I'm going to do as you wish. The only way that we would own our lives is if we created ourselves. Whatever you create, you own. You know? I create something in my basement, I own. I create it, I own it. The Bible says, we are not our own because we didn't create ourselves. We've been created by a creator. So we don't do as we wish because it's my life. I could do whatever I want. Someone else owns our life. Now, having said that, some of us grew up in Catholic churches or some environments where said, suicide is the unpardonable sin. If you committed suicide, you go to hell forever. I don't believe that. I'll tell you why. I'm a very simple person. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. That means that if you are not a Christian, whether you die by suicide or not, you're lost forever. But if you are a Christian, whether you die by suicide or not, you're safe. Suicide is wrong because our lives are not our own. Human life is sacred, thirdly, because we're made in God's image. Human life is sacred. Because we're made in God's image. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Made in the image of God. A Hebrew root for the Latin phrase for the image of God. Imago Dei means image or likeness of God. Literally, you're a snapshot or a facsimile of God. When's the last time you heard that word, facsimile? Same as last time you heard electronic mail. Facsimile, likeness, likeness. Real quick, please don't confuse being like God with being God. Can I get it, amen? Because we've been guilty of that entire week this week. Please don't confuse being like God with being God. The Bible says, though I am not God, I am of God. That's glorious, isn't it? Being made in the image of God means that God's glory. It's one Bible word I love. God's glory rests on every human being. Now The Bible tells us something. And that is that God has created His creation. And the a sense in which everything God has created reflects His glory to some degree. Psalm 19, one of my favorite Psalms in all the Bible. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I have. I have. I was 12 years old, been in this country two years, and we drove in our crowned Victoria. <laughs> we drove. <laughs> My parents, I don't know if they were cheap, but we didn't have money. We didn't even go to a motel. We just slept in the car. We slept in the car and went to Niagara Falls. Me, my brother, and my sister. I still remember as a 12-year-old. I mean, I came from Korea, you know. I, I just... I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know what I mean? Anybody been to Grand Canyon? Do you see something of the glory of God? Of course you do. By the way, by the way, can I just say something? Do you go to the Grand Canyon to feel good about yourself? <laughs> then why do we go to God to feel good about ourselves? Nobody in their right mind goes to Niagara Falls and goes, I want to I feel better about myself. I think I am going to go watch the Grand Canyon. Nobody does that. And yet, the Creator God. We go to him, not just to be in awe, but so we could feel good about ourselves. The heavens declare the glory. There's a sense in which all of God's creation reflects his glory. God created us, though, different. We are made in the image of God. All of creation reflects God, yes, but they reflect God dimly. They reflect God like a polished rock, if you will, reflects God or reflects you. You can see a little bit of your face, a little bit of shadow, but dimly. But God says, we, you and me, have been made in the image of God. It makes us different from plants and animals and other creation. We are created I, We are created in the image of God. That's what makes us moral, rational. That's what makes us personal. That's what makes us relational. That's what makes us creative. That's what makes us be able to envision the future. That's what makes us capable of love and of communication. God created us to be like him, to resemble him, to reflect God's being in a way that no other creation can resemble. Does anybody else just kind of just, just anybody else just like, whoa, by that? But there's a personal application to this, and then a larger, broader social application, and I'll get into it. The personal is this. Do you know why you're so unhappy all the time? Yeah, I know, Peter, because of, no, it's not because of. Do you know why you and I long for love, but no matter how much love we get or find, it just never seems enough? Do you know why no matter how much you accomplish and achieve, It seems like, you know who I'm talking to. It seems like there's another, oh, another ladder, another rung, another. Do, Do you know why you and I long innately for beauty? And we find it finally and go, oh. Do you know why our desires are insatiable? Do you know why no matter how much love, joy, success, accomplishments, we get It just never seems, ah. Do you know why we fear death? Animals don't fear death. They fear pain. They don't fear death. If there is no God, there's nothing more natural than death. If this is all there is, there's nothing more natural. We die, we're done. Thank you. Lights out. But why is it you and I fear? I've been in the uh, bedside of people who die. Why is it that we fear death? Here's the reason why, and I'm just riffing off of C.S. Lewis. Because an eternal God has created us in his image, and he has put eternity in our hearts. And we are trying to fulfill eternal longings of our hearts with temporal things like food, and sex, and relationships. An eternal God has put eternity in your hearts. And we're busy about food and sex and drugs. And, and God goes, do you know why you're so unhappy? Well, C.S. Lewis said it best. I can't do it any better than him. Mere Christianity, which every Christian ought to read. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is, read the rest with me. We were made for another do you know why you're so unhappy? Somebody clap. Do you know why you're so unhappy? It's because you're so great. God goes, I put my stamp on you. I put my image on you. I've made you to resemble me. An eternal God has created us and put eternity in our hearts. And God says, you're going about every day trying to find this temporal." And God goes, do you realize how great you are? Do you know how great sitting there going, maybe I'm just maladjusted. I don't know. I'm just unhappy. Maybe I need therapy. You probably do need therapy, but that's a whole other discussion, okay? But the reason why, reason why there is an unsettled, there is an aggravated, I'm so unhappiness, a base note of happiness in our hearts is because you and I are finding things in this world to satisfy a heart and a soul that wasn't made for this world. Are you hearing me? You will search for the rest of your life and go, I just never got there. You'll never get there. But here's what I need you to do. That, oh, I'm not, this isn't quite, don't ignore it. Don't self-medicate it. Don't be in denial about it. Let it drive you deeper into Jesus. Can I say that again? Don't watch Sex in the City to escape. I'm calling you out. Stop, stop. Talk, stop, don't do that. Come on, I could go on about this. Don't escape, don't self medicate, don't ignore it. That thing there is there for a purpose, and it's to drive you deeper and deeper and deeper into the only person that could fulfill your heart. Don't be a coward, don't escape. for me <laughs> If you're visiting this is old news when I talk louder and louder it's because what? I'm talking to my self. Okay? That's right. Sociological implication, sociological implication, what do I mean? The best way to explain what it means that we're made in the image of God, again, is to think of us as mirrors. C.S. Lewis, again, I, I, I don't like quoting a lot, you know, but I need to today, so forgive me. God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for, nothing less. We were built as mirrors to reflect God. That's the greatness we've been given. Everybody, look up here though. The reason why we're so unhappy is because we, like mirrors, were meant to reflect God, but we have turned away from Him. No longer facing the sun, we're facing the darkness. What's the difference between a mirror and a polished rock in the darkness? Answer nothing. Why? Because even though a mirror has the capacity to reflect God, reflect the sun, the light, when it's faced away and turning towards darkness, nothing can reflect it. And the God says, that's the condition that we're in when we've turned away to be our own gods and masters. We've turned away from God. And this beautiful thing that's meant to mirror God has been cracked, has been distorted. But, have you ever seen those old, ornate, beautiful mirrors that's been cracked and distorted, you look into it and you could still see semblance of your face, of your reflection. Please listen carefully. And God says, that's how I see you and that's how you and I ought to see each other. When you and I see our neighbors and people out there in our city, we are to see them. And CSU uh, uses this analogy too. We are to see them like those castles in Europe. You go in yeah. those beautiful castles. Doesn't even have a roof. It's just a, a ruin, a structure. But you look at it and you go, man, that's just wow. There's a grandeur about it. There's a beauty about it. There's this thing which you look at it and go, one of the I could see what that. Do you and I look at that person who's drugged out, an addict, that person who's sinful, who's messed up, do you and I ever look at that person and go, I wonder pers- what that person will look like when they're finally restored? I wonder what he or she will look like when they're finally restored. Do you and I ever look at the most broken people in the world and go, oh? Dr. Sims, are you resonating with what I'm talking about this morning? I just, whatever I read this, I get messed up every time. God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. Do you know why the ancient people valued gold? It wasn't because it was scarce. They valued gold. Why? Because it was what? Timeless. It didn't rust. It didn't go away. It lasted forever. Let me put it in the simplest, most blunt way possible. Billions of years from now, when all the most beautiful, majestic mountains on earth have turned into pebbles. Billions of years from now, when the sun that is so bright now is almost burnt out. When the mountains are turned into pebbles and the sun is almost non-existent, the person sitting next to you will still be around. Yes, look at each other. That person will still be <laughs> around. You see, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, just thinking about this for me is just like, "Oh. Ah! Is this amazing to you? Do you see why, if we understood this, it would radically, radically change how we treat each other? I mean, my goodness. My goodness. This is the Christian message human beings are immortal, nature is mortal. We will outlive nature. One last yes, quote, I'm done. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. Read the next part with me. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, slash emotionally, criticize, gossip about, judge, ignore, flip off. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. <laughs> Thomas Watson is an old Puritan preacher. He's wrote some good commentaries, actually. His commentary on the Beatitudes is very helpful. Ten Commandments, and he says, whenever you harm another human being, whenever you harm them physically spiritually emotionally you harm and abuse them whenever you violate another human being it's like tearing god's picture and god says an assault another human being is an assault on me you're tearing my picture practical application and then we're done. One, doctrine of carefulness. Here's the doctrine of carefulness. It says that human life is so important and precious that anything that might harm it or weaken it in any way must be avoided at all costs. Human life is so important and precious that anything that might harm it or weaken it in any way must be avoided at all costs. I'm going to get myself into trouble in the next one minute, but I'm okay with that. What if our Christian nation took this doctrine seriously? If our Christian nation took this doctrine seriously, black and brown lives would matter just as much as white lives. If our Christian nation took this seriously our justice system would work for everyone, including the poor, including those who are less privileged and uneducated. If our Christian nation took this doctrine seriously, we would actually aggressively look out for the least, the last, and the most marginalized. Church, can I get an amen? But you and I don't get off the hook that easily. Tell them, Peter. Tell No, no, no. I want to tell you. Because if we took this doctrine seriously, this isn't just about capital punishment, euthanasia, and abortion. If we took this doctrine seriously, then everybody who comes into your sphere would feel valued, honored, and affirmed. If you and I took this doctrine seriously, I am telling you, everyone who comes into your sphere would feel valued, honored, and feel affirmed and loved. Do you take this doctrine seriously? Does every single human life that comes into your sphere walk away going, I felt loved, I felt dignity, I felt like a person of worth, I felt like he took me seriously? I felt like he looked out for my best interest. I don't know if I do that. Ask them. Ask your parents. Ask your spouse. Ask your friends. Ask your people. And they'll tell you. You don't want to do it though, do you? That's a very bad sign. Church, are you hearing me? This doctrine is not capital punishment, euthanasia, let's argue. This is about how do you treat that person that disagrees with you? How do you treat that person that just annoys you to no end? How do you treat that person? How do you treat these people that comes into your world? Do you treat them with the utmost care? Do you? Do I? We live in a city where people just discard people once you're a longer useful to their networking efforts or beneficial to them. You and I live in a city where retailers know you're not happy with this, then we've got other customers. We live in a city where your boss probably is going, you don't want this job? Bye. I got a hundred other people that want. It. We live in a city where we discard people, and God says, Do you consider? Every life, as if they're sacred, of infinite value. What about in here? But what do you What do you think we mean when we say we want to be an alternate city? This is what we're talking about. What do you think we mean in our mission? It's about every single aspect of our life. Are we truly different? Let me ask you Do you come in here and do you go, these are valuable people that are gonna be around a billion years from now? Do you value them? Do you honor them? Do you do or 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 do you come in here and go, oh, they're not talking about what I want to talk about? Well, no, they're not into what I'm into. Oh, I wish that. They... Do you love people or do you use people? What is your Attitude in here. you here to get? You're here to give? I don't know I'm meeting my needs. They're not very cool. I don't think I want to be friends with. What? I, I keep saying this over and over again. Our church, our church, our church. <laughs> If our church became that place where every single person walked in instead of going me, my needs. if we walked in and go, who needs a hug? Who needs shake? Who needs hey, how you doing? Who who? <sighs> Thomas Watson. In his Ten Commandments said, "There's five ways in which we." Violate this commandment. Do you want to hear it? You don't have a choice. Okay. Why am I, why am I asking you? You don't have a choice. Well, you do. You could like get up and walk out. It's okay, too. Um, one, you could break the commandment by killing somebody with your hands. Two, you could break the commandment by killing somebody with your mind. Your mind. Yes, I'm looking at you. Matthew 5. If you're angry at someone, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, Jesus said that's murder. Three, you can break the commandment by killing with your tongue, or a pen, or a keyboard, or a blog. This sermon's coming. Bearing false witness, that's what this is about. Fourth, you can break this commandment if you withhold from someone who is perishing. Help, you had the power in your heart to give. And lastly, you can break this commandment when you withhold, withdraw, neglect to give someone that which is necessary to preserve and strengthen his life. So the practical application, secondly, is aggressive compassion. Everybody say aggressive compassion. Aggressive. Let me say it again. Don't people love in our culture going, we are creating the image of God. Let's treat each other with respect. Just talk like Pastor Michael right there. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to pick on it because I forgot to pick on it. Isn't he looking so, Michael, Pastor Michael, can you just stand up please? No, I love, I love, no, I love. Do you see the collar, the the pastor collar? I love that. Like I've been trying to get one of those. I can't. Do they sell like one of those like black t-shirts with the, like the fake collar like they do with the fake tuck? Okay. Oh, are you practicing that right now? Okay, aggressive compassion. <laughs> aggressive compassion means you don't just sit there and go, we're made in the image of God. Boy, isn't that a beautiful idea? God says, then do something. You're accountable. Genesis 9, Jesus riffs on this in Matthew 25 when he says what? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Genesis nine, Jesus, verse twenty-five, Matthew twenty-five, when he says, "I was without clothes, and you what? I was without shelter, and you." Jesus, listen, 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 listen. Jesus saying, "If you have it within your power to help somebody, then you better do it." Why? Because what you failed to do to them, he said, "What? You're doing unto." An assault on them is an assault on me. A lack of care and compassion for them is a lack of care and compassion for me. If you have something in your power to alleviate a condition that might lead to somebody's death, somebody's destruction, Jesus says you must do it. When you look around the world and you see people who are perishing, who are being oppressed, who are being denied their rights, people who need certain necessities to strengthen their lives, and you have it in your hands to do it, you must do it. If you have power in your hands to enable those folks to have their lives be strengthened, you must do it. Do you have things in your hand, in your power to do something and yet not doing it? To say you're accountable for the life of your fellow man means to look around and say, are there people whose lives are perishing, being weakened, and do I have power to do something that I haven't yet exerted? Do you feel the weight of your neighbor's glory? Think how radically socially active we'll be. If we believe this, think how radically politically active we'll be if we believe this. If you have any power in your hand, education, resources, time, knowledge to help people who are perishing and you're not exerting it, you are not honoring this commandment to not murder. And don't think high and mighty lofty. I'm telling you again. It's how you think and treat that person sitting next to you on the L. It's how you treat your parents. It's how you treat your spouses. Aggressive compassion. CC. Where do you get the power to do this? I preached at a, a singles ministry of a huge mega church out in Elgin, and I preached there a second time, and, and it was kind of funny because I preached there like a year ago, and, and I was very direct about it. I got to this part, and I said, you know, typically a lot of churches, if you go to churches, they'll go like, so go and do it, and I talked about forgiveness. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to end this sermon, by God. here are three ways to forgive. I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus because he is the ultimate motivation. So this time I, would pre- I preached on, uh, on money and resources. And I got to this part and I was like, you know where I'm going to go? And they were all like, the gospel. I was like, yes. <laughs> you know where you get the power to do this? Let me put it very bluntly. You have to go to Jesus who is the image of God where you could have your image restored so that you can go out and restore and protect the image of God in others. Can I get an Amen. Did you hear what I just said? Don't neglect the order. You have to go to Jesus, who is the image of God. Look to him. Go draw near to him. Have the image of God restored in you. Why is that important? Because you are no better if you're self-righteous towards the self-righteous. You are no better if you are arrogant towards the arrogant. You are no better if you are a racist towards the racist. You are no better if you are intolerant towards the intolerant. The only way you could restore the image of God in others is you first have to have the image of God restored in you. Our society does not need any more people who want to to restore the image of God in others without having the image of God restored in them first. Get the order right. Colossians 1.51, he is the image of the invisible God. Ephesians 4, we come to him, we become like him, and our image is renewed. Go to him. Have the image of God restored in you first. Why? That's the only way you'll be humble enough and bold enough to restore the image in others. When you go to Jesus, you realize, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am a sinner saved by grace. If you don't see that, there is no possible way. You look at the lost, the hurting, the addict, the sinner, the alcoholic, the drug. There is no way. You look at them and not be judgmental. You look at them and go, pull yourself by the bootstraps, man. What's wrong with you? I did. The only way that that attitude is just, 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 uh, what am I thinking? Just uh, oxy, oxy, what is that? The, the only way that that arrogance, that self righteousness in all of us is completely washed away, washed away is if you look at that smelly, stinking homeless man and you go, In the sight of God, we are no different. If you do not feel that to the bottom of your heart, go to Him first until you do. Go to him until you're humble. Then, though, you don't just go, oh, woe is me. I'm such a bad sinner. That's you. You don't understand that. because the gospel says what? But he loves you. And he died for you. And that emboldens you. We don't just need more radically passionate, zealous people. We need people who are radically zealous and radically humble. We need people who are radically, radically passionate and radically compassionate. We need people who are radically about justice, but radically about unconditional love. They have to go together. And the only way they go together is when you go to Jesus and you have the image of God in you restored. Can you tell I feel passionate about this? As we celebrate Advent, and we are looking at a world that's broken, that's lost, that's awaiting, waiting the return of Christ. We await. And God says, oh, in the meantime, as you wait for the expectant hope, you work now, you participate now, you walk with God now. But I'm telling you, this world does not need any more people who are just wanting to restore the image of God in others because they're driven by some. I mean, this world needs more people whose image of God is restored because they've gone to Him deeply humbled and deeply emboldened get up and go I want to give my life my resources to aggressively be compassionate and restore the image of God in others we need more people who go to the king and have our image restored so they can look at other people as kings because we've got his kingly blood running through our veins will that be you? that be me father we need you we so desperately need you (laughs) we so desperately need you in this time A time in which this world needs witnesses and testimony of the gospel more than ever, a time in which the image of God is being marred in the lives of our brothers and our sisters by a culture and society that has no understanding of the sacredness and the infinite value. A Society hell bent on trampling one another, outdoing one another in a world that so desperately needs a glimpse of the world to come in the people of God, in the church. We desire to have the image of God that's been marred in us to be restored, to be made whole, to be put together. So that we could join you, God, in this amazing work that you are about. So we come to you, Jesus, because you are only hope. You are our only hope. You are the hope of this nation. You are the hope of this world. We desperately need you, Jesus.